0: Hi, and welcome to ETFs for Beginners, where we'll be hacking a path through the investing undergrowth to clear a path to understand exchange-traded funds, more commonly known as ETFs. I'm Phil Muscatello, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Anna Christina. Hello, Anna.
1: Hi, Phil. How are you today?
0: Always good. So, who have we got on today?
1: Uh, today we're excited to have Captain Phi from his popular website by the same name. So if you haven't heard of him, he's retired at the age of 30 and we are excited to hear about his journey to retirement or early retirement. So thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me guys. Yeah, I sort of stumbled my way into this whole area, kind of by accident, but uh, it's been a lot of fun and I've learned heaps. But I guess like first up, I just wanna say not a financial advisor, just the guy talking about his experience with uh, reaching financial independence. So with that sort of disclaimer out of the way, I'm kind of happy to, to answer sort of any questions you have.
0: And um, we've also put in a disclaimer for ourselves is that neither Anna or myself are financial advisors and um, don't buy anything based on what you've heard here today because we know nothing.
1: We're just learning. We're just learning as we talk to other people. So, Captain Phi, let's talk about early retirement. So, you've retired at 30, which is quite an achievement. Can you tell us a little bit more about the fire movement, Financial Independence Retire Early, and what does that actually mean?
2: Yeah, sure. So, look, it's an interesting one, right? So, I'm no longer working flying full-time. So, in that respect, yeah, I've I've retired from, from full-time work. But what I kind of have done is pivoted to multiple forms of, of passive income. And anyone who's read, and we'll talk about this a bit later, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss will understand this concept of pivoting to businesses and investment for streams of income. And it's pretty big in the fire community. So. Whilst I consider myself to have retired, I do still spend a bit of time working on like passion projects, working on my websites and other little ways to generate income streams. So it's not as though I have, quote unquote, completely retired from work and I sit on my couch and do nothing and just receive dividends. Like that's kind of not how this works. But um, more broadly speaking, FIRE stands for financial independence, retire early. It's basically all about financial security, trying to become more self-reliant and become financially independent to take responsibility for your your retirement. Now, a lot of people who sort of get involved in FIRE, they focus on the investing, Manuta, but I think what's actually more important is kind of the behavior and the mindset. So to me, FIRE was all about creating a wealth and abundance mindset and thinking long-term It was about diversifying my income streams, spending mindfully, and then diligently investing. And the aim for me, at least, was to try and gain more control of my life and get more time.
0: And I think you've got an interesting view of retirement because you seem to be busier than ever. I mean, reading your website and your blogs, it's not like you've uh, just sat back and um, sipping Mai Tais on the beach.
2: Well, I enjoyed probably a good few months, well, it's probably more like six months of really not doing a lot. But no, I love having time to be a bit more self-directed. And so I think, you know, there are obviously many different kinds of people. Some people love the security of like a nine to five wage, but, you know, some people hate that. They don't like being tied down and they want to have a little bit more autonomy. You know, you can use fire as a tool to work out where you sit in that spectrum. And basically having passive income, like how can that possibly be a bad thing, right? So for most of us in the FIRE community we do this by simply spending less than we earn and investing in the difference. So many people like you end up with seriously high incomes because you start to get really good at negotiation and optimization. You know, you can work out roles that are actually going to pay you more for your skills or work out how to upskill. You tend to get really good at budgeting and optimizing your expenses. And then sort of the last step is looking to invest that surplus. Now, most of us just look at sort of broadly diversified ETF stock portfolios, things like investment properties. But I've actually found it to be quite cool to look into some alternative investments like businesses or websites. But it's sort of important to realize that there are different degrees of passivity, if that's even a word, or basically how much time you have to put in for these things to yield you income.
0: So, Captain, it uh, seems to me that sometimes people go to extremes in the fire movement. I mean, you see these people who live <laughs> on nothing but tinned baked beans and spaghetti for years on end just to save some money. And there's a, I'm not sure if you follow Captain Parsimonious on uh, Twitter, who's very funny about this fire movement, but um, is there a work-life balance or is there an um, independence life balance that you need to strike in this situation?
2: Oh, of course, mate. You know, if you're going to go really hard, the trick is to make it sustainable. And of course, when when we're sort of talking about FIRE and um, drawdown rates and uh, actually calculating your FIRE numbers, one of the big assumptions there is that you're not going to have any lifestyle inflation. So if you reach financial independence on a bare bones minimum of your ass, eating tin baked beans, well... You know, that's something you're going to have to continue throughout retirement. And I don't know about you, Anna, Phil, but that's not something I to really do for the rest of my life. However, like everything, there is a balance, yeah? And the time to retirement is a function of your savings rate, you know? If you look at the figures now, I could be wrong here, I'm just off the top of my head. If you save 10% of your take-home, it's going to take you something like 60 years to reach fire. If you can save 50% of your income, that drops by a quarter, To 15 years. Now, if you can save around like 80, 85%, now you're only talking four years. Okay. But to live on only 20% of your income just might not be feasible for some people, especially if you live in a high cost of living area or have a family. You know, Sydney for me was an expensive place to live. I think I did it pretty successfully, but you know, I'm single, I don't have kids. If you are going to be doing this and really optimizing everything, you can find that you can probably piss your partner off pretty easily. And that certainly, I think certainly impacted uh, one of my past relationships, me constantly not wanting to spend money, wanting to invest, not really wanting to go out for dinners. And I probably got the the balance wrong on that one. So I chalked that up to experience. So these days I try and be a little less neurotic about spending and giving myself a bit more freedom. There's a finite limit that you can save, but when you, when you start to talk about your investor mindset and, again, businesses, there is really no limit to the amount of money you can create. So if you sort of balance your efforts between spending and creating income, you can achieve the same outcome without having to live on baked beans.
1: Often I hear about that theory as widening the gap, the gap between your expenses and your income, right? Because the higher your income is and the lower your expenses are, you have that larger gap that you can invest, which I think you're talking about, right?
2: Yep, absolutely.
1: So you've talked about a couple numbers there about your saving rate, if it's 10% versus 50%. Can we talk a little bit about the numbers for anyone who hasn't heard about FIRE and what those numbers actually mean? I know that um, within FIRE, a basic calculation is if you can save 25 times your expenses, you should be able to retire. Can you talk a little bit about those numbers and, and how you actually do the calculations for yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, basically that the 25 number came out of some academic studies that were done a while ago that sort of modelled portfolio performance and drawdown rates. Overall, the theory was being that if you invested into a, a mix of stocks and bonds, then depending on the performance of the markets and how much you took out over time, you could theoretically sustain yourself for retirement and keep your capital at the end. So if you just Google the Trinity studies, you can Go down the rabbit hole and read them for yourself. But my takeaway for me personally was that a 4% drawdown rate seemed pretty safe for most 30-year retirement timeframes. All right. So off the top of my head, this is like 90 or 95% successful, and only in a few of the simulations did it fail. And this was usually due to like poor market returns or, you know, a correction or a recession in the first year of retirement. And this is talked about as being the sequence of risk returns. Basically, if there's a recession in the first year of your retirement, you're kind of screwed, right? But all is not lost Yeah, This is not autonomous. It's not a like a yes or no forever decision. Markets also recover pretty quickly. So in practice, if this sort of happens to you, you just go back to work or you just work for another few years and try not to draw down any of your investments. You just let time and compound returns fix the issue and you just give another go. So really, there's no sort of free lunch when it comes to retiring early, but additional passive income streams are really the goal. So you never want to rely on just one income stream, and that's what FIRE is about, multiple passive income streams to create freedom. So limitations with this Trinity study, right, they didn't really cover FIRE. It wasn't really about people retiring at 30 and then, you know, living to 100, you know, 70 years or so of retirement. And they didn't really cover like a really heavily growth weighted fund, so, you know, like 100% stocks. So I don't think anyone actually knows how this will go over, over these longer periods. But again, when you look at the data over a long enough time period, volatility evens out. And we've seen typically a market return around 10% with 2 to 3% inflation. So a real return of around 7 to 8% of purchasing power. So That fact alone gives me the confidence and the fact that, okay, well, if I'm potentially going to live for 70 more years, I feel more confident to ride out the peaks and troughs of markets and corrections and recessions. So back to this 25 number. So 100 divided by 4 is 25. So that's where the 25 comes from, right? And the 4, the 4 being the 4% drawdown, which leaves 3 to 4% in the fund to help grow and deal with these ups and downs of, of volatility. So that's why people, most people say, okay, if you've got 25 times your annual expenses invested in like diversified index funds, voila, you can theoretically fire off this. But you you have to be warned that it's not as simple as that. There are many, many other factors. And this is probably where financial advisors fit into the picture because they can kind of give you a more holistic information about these other aspects. You You need an emergency fund. Most people looking for three to six months. You know, you need appropriate insurances to make sure you've got your ass covered. And things get trickier when you talk about bigger families, you know, potentially health issues, pets, farms or properties, other large and expensive liabilities like sports cars, hobbies like that, which, you know, you might need to insure. So it's all about a balance. It's all about trying to balance and mitigate risks. Some people in the fire community, they want an additional factor of safety. So that opt for a 3% safe withdrawal rate rather than a 4%. And so if we divide 100 by three, we get 33. So those people, they want 33 times their annual living expenses. And sometimes they potentially want a year or two of emergency funds. And when you get to those sort of higher emergency funds, they don't just have it in in cash or in an offset. They might look at other things like other fixed interests, term deposits, bonds, peer to peer lending, stuff that a financial advisor can probably help you with. But the big thing is that these figures all assume that we die without touching the capital. So I'm a little bit different. I'm planning to actually spend my investments and aim to die with zero. And that's in a homage to a book with the same title, Die With Zero. Brilliant, brilliant read. So I want to get a bit better, you know, quote unquote performance or I'd say juice out of my retirement fund, which allowed me to leave work a little bit earlier. So I opted for a 7% withdrawal rate over 25 years. And the only reason I was able to do that is it's backed up by being able to access my annuity at 55 and then my super at preservation age. Of course, backed up by passive income from my website portfolios and the investment property that I built. And if it all stuffs up, I can turn to the age pension. So thank God we live in Australia, right? (laughs) And I guess finally, as we kind of touched on earlier, the time to fire, it's just a percentage of your savings rate. Okay. Because whether you're looking at a 4% withdrawal rate and a 25 times your annual expenses or a 3% withdrawal and 33 times your annual expenses, the common denominator is your, your average expenses. So if you can lower your average expenses with the caveat that you are going to invest that, your savings rate increases and your time to fire decreases. So if you can get your savings rate from 10 to 50%, you actually quarter your working career to only 15 years. If you can boost that to 85%, you're going to like quarter that again and you're going to be at, like, well, not quite quarter, but four and a bit years. Mr. Money Mustache published an awesome graph, which I've reposted on my website and I highly recommend checking out. And he's called the shockingly simple math behind early retirement. But the bottom line is the more frugal you are and the more percentage of your pay that you invest, the quicker you can reach FIRE.
1: That's a great article and a very thorough explanation of how to reach FIRE. I think that um, you've covered all the sides of it. When you first heard about FIRE, has your financial journey adjusted or changed along the way?
2: Oh, yeah, of course. Look, I think I'm pretty guilty. Like, I overdo a lot of stuff, Anna. I'm just that kind of personality. You know, I find something, I throw myself into it. So I probably need to, like, temper myself and not be as, you know, (laughs) not be as quick to jump in. But I, I loved it. I felt like I'd found my people. I don't know whether it's my Scottish heritage or, like, I grew up in a household where money was really tricky. Single mom, she supported us, um, me and my sisters, and we never really had a lot of money. So I've usually been pretty good with saving money, right? Because we never had a lot to deal with. And when I was a kid and when I was a teenager to get money, I had to like go out and earn it. So whether that was like cleaning graffiti or like washing people's cars, like that was how I made a bit of money. And so I sort of, knew from a fairly young age that I needed to use my labour capital to create income if I wanted to spend money. When I started working, I actually started out in a similar career uh, to you, Phil. I started out in engineering and um, thankfully, I'm really good academically, so I got a, a scholarship, but I always wanted to fly planes and I had this obsession. I wanted to become a pilot, I wanted to fly planes. But it was very expensive. Initially, like I I failed like aptitude testing with the Air Force. No airlines would take me into their cadet ships. And so I realized I'm gonna have to earn my own money to spend on flying lessons. And so I continued this frugal sort of nature. When I actually got like fully licensed and started flying, I realized shit, I need to do something with this money that I'm earning. And I actually kind of, as an aside, found out that the flying career was probably not what I had imagined it to be. Turned out it was actually a lot of hard work, right? So around like, I think it was like 2015, 2016, I started, I think I read a pretty early copy of the Barefoot Investor and that kind of really aligned with a lot of my theories about, you know, and mindset about saving. And then I got really excited and I just, I started Googling things and I discovered Mr. Money Moustache and I discovered the Aussie Firebug and I realized there's actually this whole community of people that had gone before me and that could basically pass on the gouge and tips and tricks. And yeah, so I think I just, I sort of dove into it head first and never really looked back.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
0: You've mentioned um, financial advisors before, but um, I noticed a blog post of yours where you're, you're not very not very complimentary about financial advisors.
2: Yeah, Phil, look, I've had a bit of an interesting relationship with financial advisors. And I just want to put out there that generally as a whole, I think the industry is, is a good thing. There are definitely some bloody snakes out there. So I think I wrote that article because I was pretty pissed off. I think it was around the time my... Mum and I had gone to see a financial advisor. So frustrating. Basically, she has cancer, right? She has terminal cancer and she retired because she was sick. She should have retired on an invalidity benefit, um, but she got screwed over and basically retired of her own accord and didn't get any of her entitlements. Yeah, we saw a financial advisor and they didn't really really point anything at that out and they just wanted to put her into like really expensive funds. I think it was like... It was like one point eight or something. I can't remember. I'd have to look at the article for the actual number, but it was just horrendous. And they also wanted like three grand for the statement of advice, managing like two hundred thousand of a super. So it was just it was just a joke, mate. But prior to that, i sort of had two negative experiences. One was when I started my scholarship, the uni advisor, financial advisor through the uni there, put me into like a super conservative fund, and like I was seventeen years old. And as someone with 50 years before conventional retirement, like this is just absolutely ludicrous. Like I'm not a financial advisor, but you don't have to be a genius to know that if you've got 50 years before retirement, the longer you have, the more aggressive you can be. Yeah, that's not financial advice. That's common sense. So for a financial advisor to put me into a conservative fund was just just very silly. And the second experience was when I had all my civil flying qualifications and I'd sort of stopped hemorrhaging money into into flight training organizations and I wanted to start to invest. I saw a financial advisor, I paid the money and they dumped me in a rubbish fund. Like after six, 12 months, I double checked the math and I was like, I'm getting 4% while markets were up in like double digits. And again, I was paying ridiculous fees. And so it was around then when I read Barefoot and sort of got my act together, realizing the the impact of fees. So thanks, Scott Pape, for the tip-off to get me to switch because that was life-changing advice. Life-changing financial advice from this book that I read, not from a financial advisor. So I guess the issue is that many people I think that could actually benefit from seeing a good independent fee-for-service financial advisor, like they just can't afford it or it doesn't make sense to pay the fees until you're talking about managing sort of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that doesn't really only happen unless you sort of get some kind of inheritance or some lump sum payment. It doesn't happen a lot, right? There's a saying, if you can't manage $10,000, you're not going to be able to manage 100000 let alone a million or more when we're talking fire figures. So kind of as a community, I think we all really need to take responsibility for financial education and talk about money more. And I think that will help reduce wealth inequality and reduce the gatekeeping of financial information, right? You shouldn't have to go and pay thousands of dollars to a financial advisor to get this kind of information, right? It should be general knowledge. Like there are so many tools. It's super easy to jump online and set yourself up with an automated diversified portfolio. But, you know, I feel like there's this segment, whole segment of people that believe, I call it Wall Street propaganda, you know, that investing is too hard and too scary. So you should leave it to the professionals. So they just sort of throw their hands up in the air, give up and pay someone a hefty fee to outsource it.
0: And how many times do you talk to people at a barbecue and uh, you start talking about ETFs and they go, what's an ETF?
2: (laughs) Well, then I would say WTF. (laughs) (laughs) I know this might sound kind of negative, but I don't Think financial advisors are bad, right? Because most of them are good. It's just about understanding what they do, where they fit into the picture, and how they might actually help you. I think, in generalized terms, they do get hamstrung due to regulation. And so, for a financial advisor, the job is really hard, right? Between providing value, not overcharging, managing conflicts of interest, and actually meeting regulatory requirements. Because you got to understand, like most financial advisors, they get a kickback whether that's an ongoing fee or a one-off fee for putting you into certain funds. So the conflict is obviously they, they want to put you in the fund with the, the highest kickback, and that's where the regulator has to come in to protect the consumer. I think, you know, something to consider though for consumers, you've got to understand your risk tolerance and your ability to research and understand information. So if you're not going to go out there and learn all the information that's freely available to you and you're legitimately scared or you've come into a huge life-changing amount of money, or there's been some event like an injury, a death in the family, then, you know, yeah, maybe you should probably go and see a financial advisor and get something in writing. So I just want to say though, more recently, I did actually consult a financial advisor that I was pretty happy with. The fee was pretty reasonable. I paid 500 bucks and the ongoing fees was a fixed fee of 150 bucks a year. Which I figured was pretty reasonable given my portfolio size and for the advice that I was getting. So I was like 99% sure I was doing the right thing on my own with the DIY. But for me, it was just that extra peace of mind. So I've learned in my fire journey, particularly when it comes to businesses, about the importance of building a good and trusted team of advisors. And that's not just financial advisors, that's bookkeepers, accountants, lawyers, um, brokers, agents, technical specialists. FIRE, we often focus on insourcing and doing everything ourselves, which is fine and it can work. And if you if you, you know, follow the FIRE uh, strategy, according to the percentage savings rate timeline, you can do it quite successfully yourself. But for people who are like chasing fat FIRE, which we talk about, you know, retiring with significant passive income or looking to scale their business and build wealth faster, more sustainably, you got to work on the business and not in the business. So this has been a big mindset shift for me. And so I think it's something you should be worried about sort of the fire dogma, which could be potentially self-limiting. So I think when you're looking at building a team, this could also be sort of a for or a pro argument to getting a good financial advisor. But really, you just need to consider the costs you're paying, the fees that you're paying, potential conflicts of interest, and you can't just blindly accept what they say. You've got to take some responsibility at the end of the day for your own decisions.
1: What are your thoughts of psychology and investing behaviour and how do they go hand in hand?
2: All right, so I'd say, hands down, psychology is the most important aspect when it comes to FIRE and just investing in general. You know, you often hear that the saying that, you know, money in transactions is often made on the purchasing side, and so if you can purchase at a discount, you can potentially secure years worth of value or returns at point of purchase. And even Warren Buffett says famously, be fearful when people are greedy and be greedy when people are fearful. It sounds kind of like a cliche buy low, sell high, right? Well, in practice, I don't think anyone can do that, right?
0: It's hard. It's really hard.
2: Yeah. Maybe Buffett or, um, you know, a handful of insider traders <laughs> can do that, right? But as, as lowly unwashed masses, I think we need to borrow a euphemism from the crypto finance bros and just say we need we need diving hands, right? it's impossible to pick the dizzying tops and it's just as impossible to pick the crushing lows. But if we focus on our behavior and think long-term, sort of decades or more, we can literally just zoom out and realize that you know, long-term, we're holding profitable businesses that make us money while we sleep. So we should just hold on for the ride. <laughs> so I guess with FIRE, like a similar analogy is we make most of our performance in the savings rate, right? Especially if we're talking smaller timeframes. So if we can save more, we can invest more, we can reach financial independence quicker. And if you read between the lines there, that means we need as high of an income as possible and as much self-discipline as possible. Again, while the amount we can save is limited, the amount we can earn is not. So looking at our psychology and switching our mindset, I think is hands down one of the most important aspects to FIRE and reaching financial independence quicker.
0: The other thing about psychology though is – having the confidence and having the commitment to going through those periods when markets are going through one of their regular spasms. And that can be really hard for people who haven't been through. I mean, there's a lot of people your age who haven't actually been through a serious one. Okay, March 2020 was pretty serious, but there were still a lot of people even in that that time who just, as soon as fear took over, they started selling.
2: Yeah. And also, right, Just realized I'm not an expert at this. And that freaked me out as well. I actually, when I look back over my investing choices, I actually stopped buying us regularly during that crash. And it was only when things sort of came back to normalcy that I started regularly buying again. So a big thing that's actually helped me overcome this limitation when it comes to psychology is the use of automation. So we use automation on a daily in aviation, it's one of the best things that happened to flight safety and reducing fatigue. But I was able to actually use automation with my investment portfolio. And that's actually stopped me from sort of screwing myself over when it comes to things like that. So yeah, looking at the psychology, looking at ways that you can automate and take yourself out of the loop is the best way I think going forward.
1: Automation is a really big one, I think, and similarly, like when things drop, sometimes if you look at the graphs, you realize that where it dropped to was potentially something that was maybe a few months ago. And so, if you were automating your investing this whole time, you would have actually purchased that at that price a few months ago as well, right?
2: Absolutely, just got to zoom out, zoom out, and just just chill. Focus on what you can control: earning more money and saving money. Let the investments do their thing.
1: Yeah. Don't freak out. Zoom out. How do ETFs play into your investing strategy?
2: Okay. So, like, as I sort of mentioned before, I try to generate income and then stash it away into what I consider the relatively boring sort of low management expense index tracking ETFs. So, um, obviously, throughout my career, I've been generating income for flying and with side hustles. And these days, I'm trying to generate income uh, with a portfolio of, of websites, online businesses. And then basically I take my money and I invest it into a very boring, very basic, globally diversified split. So I publish all of my investments on my blog for better or worse. That's kind of why I blog semi-anonymously. But I, I basically have three different ETFs. So I've got one for Australia, I've got one for America, and I've got one for global markets minus America. And you can read about them on my blog if you want. Income sort of comes in the form of dividends from these ETFs and you know, I just love seeing them drop into my bank account. That sort of goes back to the psychology of, of money. So yes, it's perhaps not as efficient as a DRP or a DSSP. And you can Google what those things are. But for me, it's a psychological thing that makes me feel good. And it lets me rebalance by investing according to my splits. And it kind of makes me feel like I'm more in control, like I have more independence. So yeah, ETFs, very, very basic, low management fee, boring is good.
0: And um, I'm a bit disappointed. I love a dividend reinvestment plan. <laughs> I love sitting there every uh, quarter, especially with ETFs, where you get um, quarterly distributions and working out my new number of uh, shares that I own.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's good, but it can it can make the accounting tricky. I guess it's like you know different strokes for different folks. I did used to use the DRPs quite a bit, but I just I just love having you know thousands of dollars appear in my my bank account. Randomly, it's it's kind of a cool feeling.
1: Surprise, thousand dollars. <laughs> Can't go wrong,
2: right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: trouble is you spend it
2: though. Yeah, on more ETFs. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Captain Fi, where can people find more about you and your thoughts on fire and investing?
2: All right. So look, mainly I, I blog all about my sort of experience to fire at my website. It's just captainfire.com. But it's just, it's important to realize that like none of this stuff, like it's not rocket science. It's really basic. And this information has been out there for hundreds of years and it sort of gets passed down and passed down. So, you know, I'd love for you to come and and read stuff on my blog. I have a podcast and I'm on social media as well, but really there is so many amazing resources where you can learn all about investing and financial independence for free. And I've got giant lists of those on my blog where you can literally just farm yourself out and go down the rabbit hole so i really just want to you know i guess pay my dues and homage to all the people that have come before me and have basically made this possible and i just want to basically put out there that look i'm just a guy that's learning as i go i didn't invent this stuff and you know there's no need to reinvent the wheel so to speak i'm just sort of giving my, my flavor of what i've learned
1: beautiful well thank you so much for being on the show
2: yeah, no worries. It was awesome to chat.
0: And great to meet you, Captain Phi. And uh, we promise not to reveal your secret identity.
1: If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend. It may help them and help us keep going with the show. Also, don't forget to rate us. ETFs for beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It is in financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not ETFs for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thank you for listening to this podcast.